Good friends, we'll uh, sit together for 15 minutes or so. So I invite you to uh, allow yourself to uh, totally be here now in whatever way you are right now. See if you can allow life to manifest just as it does. Allowing the sensations and the temperature And any feeling, emotion, state of mind to be there just as it is. Letting life free to be just as it is unfolding right now. Let yourself be held by earth. By space and silence.
So, pretty amazing the power of uh, doing nothing. Huh? Just sit there and the whole of our life is revealed. So you guys did it. Um, I think it would be very fitting, it would make sense to um, welcome you back with a big celebration, a big meal, and songs and dance, you know, it's like you've gone on the, and I, I really hope I'm not making some uh, cultural appropriation by using this term, but it feels so right, vision quest. You know, you've gone on a vision quest and you're coming back and it would, it would be the right way to welcome you back by doing a big celebration. It actually makes me a little sad that we don't do this because I think it would uh, say how important it is what we do, you know, uh, for us and for the communities we live in. Uh, so chances are it's going to be a little bit more s kind of sober, <laughs> welcoming. Um, we do have lunch, yeah. <laughs> and speech, we'll be able to connect. Um, I remember for the first few years of my practice, coming out of retreat for me was extremely emotional. It still is, actually. <laughs> but, uh, like, I could hardly be in the hall at this moment. You know, I would be more like in the woods crying. And uh, my main thought was, do not release me yet. You know, like, I'm a kind of a danger for society or potential <laughs> danger, you know. Knowing that, you know, all the what happens in this psyche, you know, is, is I know I'm going to hurt people, you know, and I'm going to create confusion around me. And so don't release me yet, you know. But with time, I kind of learned to actually maybe become more aware of what was happening in this heart and mind and be able to avoid some of the trouble I used to create. And also to take responsibility and be honest, you know, that's what I learned to do on the cushion, to actually uh, be honest about uh, my impact and, and uh, be responsible without, as I was saying yesterday, maybe without the guilt aspect, just the, hey, I want to take care of what I will do and did, you know. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of emotions. And uh, you, you might know now or will find out uh, very soon that you chances are you're pretty sensitive right now. It's all good because we did work on this. We paid attention to the senses to get sensitive. And, uh, but now because you know, oh, it's going to open to, you know, driving, airport, bus station, people, you know, it might be, a, might be some intensity that you feel now. So be very, very kind with yourself uh, today and for the next, for the rest of your life, be kind with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and with others, you know. Um, You know, we talked at uh, the first uh, day, first evening of the retreat of the precepts, 
these are really ally for us. So you can look at them again and study them and see how they might make sense for you in your life. What I like about them for me is that, again, I know that there's a lot going on in this psyche, you know, a lot of trouble, a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, wrong beliefs that will be clarified later. And to have the precepts for me is, uh, I, I think of it as my first line of defense or my first line, way of protecting others, really. So acknowledging that there's a lot of confusion in there, I put some rules, you know, oh, I'm not actually going to speak harshly or abusively, intentionally. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to take what is not offered. I'm going to be really careful with my sexuality not to hurt. So it's uh, knowing that there's a lot of trouble in here. I say like, okay, this is the first line of defense. The second one will be strong mindfulness and taking really care of what's happening in this heart-mind, you know. Uh, and so that we can rely on this. We can say, we can commit to this regu- regularly and know that we're protecting and being protected by that. So that can be a really beautiful area of practice as we go back to life, you know, consider these precepts and uh, yeah, make them make sense for you. Um, so what I'm doing, actually, I didn't tell you what we're going to do. Is maybe the three of us will speak a little bit on going home and practice. Spontaneous ideas about transition and home practice. And then we'll open to Q&A for a little while. Then after, we'll do a little exercise, uh, maybe in little triads, little groups of three. So we uh, bring speech and listening, the other, in our field of awareness, kind of uh, helping us transition to just like, okay, Let's go. You're l- loose, you know. <laughs> so just to see if we, how we can invite mindfulness in uh, ex- live exchange with people, and then we'll close the retreat and uh, and this meal celebration will be served. <laughs> so these um, the precepts. Um, one thing I heard that stuck with me around the. The, all the practice of the heart, you know, the friendliness and compassion. And so three ways that you might want to engage with these. So one, of ways is, one way is uh, through reflection, thinking about this, you know, thinking about the uh, advantages of friendliness, benevolence, thinking of the dangers of hatred, you know. And there's classic lists for this, and I like these classic lists. It says uh, with... Uh, Hatred, it says, uh, anger and hatred, when mixed together, uh, make you lose, uh, uh, forget about consequen- con- consequences of your words, and you suddenly, like, you just do what you do, and you, on the other side, you wake up and say, oh my God, you know, here's the trouble I created by my words. It says you can even forget what is uh, uh, legal and illegal, when you're in a spur of hatred and you can actually do something that is illegal, you know. Uh, so anyway, thinking like this of a, and the beauty of compassion, and reflecting on this because we say what we reflect on regularly becomes the inclination of our mind and in times become our personality. You've heard that before, you know. And so reflecting, using the thinking process uh, in this way to nurture uh, these beautiful qualities. Uh, 
Um, we can also make them guidelines for our life. Act on these. Speak on these. Say, oh, I want my speech and my action to be led by these qualities of stability, equanimity, kindness, compassion, uh, and joy. You know. Um, and so reflect on this. Have them be guidelines for actions and speech. And then the meditation aspect. It's, um, the meditation is sitting on the cushion and developing this friendliness, being very intentional. I'm sitting to befriend experience, to uh, sympathize with experience, to learn to welcome what is there. Uh, but also there's another kind of meditation, is, is a meditative presence, I would say. It, and the, the, what I mean by that is really tuning in in the presence of these qualities in your day, inside of you and in, in when it's uh, offered by others. If somebody's being generous with you, tune in. Like, be really attentive to that. Like, how does it affect me when somebody's being kind? And there's many small moments of kindness. I invite you to really tune in. It really brings a lot of energy, a lot of uh, um, trust in uh, human beings. And it actually develops it in our own mind because we're, we let ourselves be impressed by experiences of uh, kindness and compassion. Uh, yeah, I notice this these days a lot when I'm, uh, there's one particular situation where I look for change to pay for something at the cashier. And I'm like looking for the two ten cents or something, you know, and I'm kind of like, oh, you know, like feel like I'm not good at finding change in my wallet. <laughs> bad human being that doesn't belong on the earth because they <laughs> can't be efficient. And the person the, on the other side of the counter is just allowing this to happen. You know, like, and I can feel it sometimes. They're just totally fine with it. They know, you know, it's their profession. <laughs> They're professional at this. And so they allow me to do this. And, and I can relax into this and not, you know, like, wow. And the other day I went like this. I had the roll of five cents at the bank, and I, it just exploded as I put it on the <laughs> counter, and I felt really bad. And the person said this little kind of funny thing, I can't remember what it was, but it was just enough to make me re my system relax, you know? And I was deeply touched by that we can do this to one another, you know? By is, don't even have to say a word often, just a turning of, of the mind towards kindness, and whoops, things open up. And so we can tune in to these, uh, these things and nourish them. Notice the absence of it also, the absence of it when it's not there, but not in a judgmental way. This person is so harsh, like, let me be really present to harshness, to know how it impacts my being, because then I'll remember that this is what I can do to people also. You know? It's good to sit, sit in a daily way. Because for me, it's uh, mainly what it does is it helps me remember my values, my deepest values, what I care about by sitting suddenly, caring, listening, tuning in, becomes a value again. And I remember this. So I can take this with me in the day. So that's one reason why you would want to do this daily. Meet with 
people weekly if you can, you know, live or online or some. There's so many forms now uh, that we can create Sangha community. So I invite you to look for these opportunities, create them. It's extremely powerful to be with, uh, bring intention, be with, you know, make, highlight this again in our lives. Maybe lastly, I'll just say um, one area that we can um, bring much attention to is the area of speech. And we'll do this a little later. But speech is extremely powerful. It's a nuclear energy. Uh, and it can open the heart. We've seen it some this week here. You know, We've used speech... Mindfulness of emotions. You just do that, you notice. And you've done that all week. We've used speech, speech in the best way we could to create safety and uh, you know, lightness of heart and courage. And Speech can do this. It can also destroy, hide truth, uh, confuse people. So... We can take this on as a practice, and it is going to be messy. Any of your practice, is, if you're anything like me, is going to be extremely messy. So this image, in a way, is also a dangerous image. It, like there's a reflection of perfection and utopia, and it's much more messy than that. And, I, and it's, it's okay to walk a path in a crooked way and then fall in the ditch every few days and you know this this probably is mostly what it's going to look like for you uh, if you're a human being uh, and let that be part of the path you know don't don't be harsh with yourself and it's going to be like this probably around speech also in the way that you shut down don't say things that maybe you could or in the way that you you know I mean, that might not apply to everybody. It certainly applies to me. So that's my little take on this. Okay, thank you. So we were talking about um, what we learned about um, practice yesterday. Um, and I was thinking one thing that I, I didn't say was about um, more and more it becomes apparent to me that uh, we're all in this field of cultivation of the heart and mind. You know, we're all in the field of training. Meaning it becomes more obvious when you're in retreat that intentionally you're doing this. But actually the truth is that everyone is doing this all the time in some way or another, intentional or unintentional, uh, in life. So there's kind of different, you know, there's sort of the game board of how much money you have that people are playing on or... Uh, you know, a game board of like physical attractiveness. Or, you know, there's these different sort of things that we pay attention to. Uh, and one of them that 
mostly people don't pay attention to is that in each moment that we're speaking or acting, we're actually planting these seeds of intention. So anytime that we have, for example, like hatred arise and then we go with that, you know, we're kind of cultivating that along. You know, in some ways we're sort of like fertilizing, watering the hatred area of the mind farm, you could say, you know, like weeding nicely, uh, you know, supporting the thriving of this area, right? Uh, and this is happening, like, whether we know it or not, you know. So, like, people outside right at this moment, I'm sure, are fighting over parking spaces they dug out, you know, in the, <laughs> in the snow. And, uh, you know, I know there have been, like, bloodshed over this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that's, like, cultivating that row of this, right? It's, you know, on one level, it's about the parking space, but on another level, there's actually, like, this intense cultivation going on, you know, planting of seeds, like training of the mind in this way. Uh, And then the other side, you know, in these beautiful ways, also sometimes unintentionally, accidentally, you know, the one who is kind to Pascal when he's trying to get his change and stuff, you know, it's like planting seeds in this way also. So then that's like um, working in this area of the mind farm, you know, it's like the kindness area, the joy area, patience, right? So the, the precepts orient us towards noticing uh, particularly strong areas of human action that are fueled by this. So the urge towards um, violence or um, aggression. You know, this, you take this training like, okay, I, I undertake the training to refrain from uh, physically harming uh, living beings, from killing living beings. And so then once you take these intentions, these like determinations intentions are actually very powerful you take these sincerely, even take them every day and see what it's like. And then if you're about to do something, suddenly out of nowhere there's like a little guardrail. You know, it's like, oh, wait a minute. There was something I remember about this moment <laughs> you know, that sometimes can stop you, right? When you're in like mid-squash of bug or something. It's like, wait, living being, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, so it's good, it's like little bumper rails, you know, for that. So knowing this, that there's this constant cultivation going on, you know, as we start to tune in more and more to this level of the playing field, you could say, uh, you still have to do your functional activities and go to your job and, you know, raise your kids and do whatever you have to do, cook and grocery shop and stuff. But all the time, you know, to, there's this other level going on. So remembering that in some way. And this word for uh, mindfulness in Pali, sati, is also sometimes translated as remembering. There's a piece of it that's about remembering. And it doesn't actually take that much effort in some ways, but it's just the remembering part of it. So the sitting daily is really helpful for connecting with that. And then I'd also recommend to kind of find different points in your day to... uh, tune in, like make habits that will help you to remember. And I'm very moved by practice of devout uh, Muslims who five times a day uh, orient towards Mecca, you know, roll out the prayer rug, like get down on their knees and pray. So what would that be like if we did that? If you find five times a day in your life in which you orient towards what is most important and uh, sacred even, I would say, or uh, for you, uh, and kind of realign, 
you know, you could say this whole retreat could be like, okay, that we're realigning here, you know, you could like tune up here. But so what if you found little ways to realign five times a day when you start to get a little off, like, you know. So then before you get like, you know, you're like. <laughs> so examples of what you could do in this is like, um, you could say, uh, when I stand at the elevator in my building, you know, that's like standing meditation. And it could be just like a standing meditation in the hall. And when I push the button, that's like the bell, ding, right? And then just connect with the body, be present, remembering, right? And then, you know, let the elevator do the work, right? Take you up, then get out and walk. Um, It could be that you decide you want to do some metta practice and like your commute, either if you're in a car or on public transportation, you know, like uh, cultivate like wishing well for those around me. It could be that you want to say, for the first, at least few bites of my lunch, I will try and be present and actually taste the food, you know. Or if you want, why not the whole lunch too? <laughs> or like a cup of coffee that you have in the afternoon or something. Be like, let me reorient, reconnect like this. You can find a walking path, a place that you walk where uh, you don't have to think about where you're going. So to the bathroom or to the copier or down the hall. And during that walking path, train yourself to connect with the body, to re-embody, you know, with this kind awareness. Uh, And then maybe at the end of the day, even as you're lying down, you could feel the body and then you could even bring to mind the different people you have interacted with and, like, wish well for them, you know. You don't know what's happened to them, everyone who you've encountered, right? So you can be creative about it. And I think, like, we we have to engage with our practice and particularly in the modern world to make it uh, make it something meaningful and make it something that um, becomes part of our life uh, in some creative way but it can be kind of fun you know you take some some set of practice like this and say like let me try them for the rest of the month and then uh, see how it goes and if that didn't work out then you can adjust them like that Also, the talks from this retreat are going to be on Dharma Seed and um, Audio Dharma and is another place you can find other talks, Dharma Talks. So you could listen to Dharma Talks also. and They have um, ones from uh, those of us here, but also all different teachers and you can search by a different topic and things like that. So that can be a great support for your practice. As well as, of course, uh, live humans <laughs> that you can meet. So I know many people here are from like New York or Boston or even other places, there are Dharma groups that you could connect with. Um, so sitting groups or going to daylongs or something like that, or of course coming back here to um, IMS on retreat, or if you want to come to Spirit Rock on the West Coast where I teach um, in California, you're all welcome. Uh, they're doing a month-long retreat there right now. And uh, I sent my colleagues pictures from here uh, and they sent me pictures from there where it's uh, <laughs> 73 degrees this weekend. And, uh <laughs> but this is also beautiful, you know. So, like, um, so yeah, you know, if you've had some taste of, of retreat that you feel like, wow, there's something that I learned here that's important, then um, uh, allow yourself, if you can in your life, the time to do this again. And um, in fact, sometimes for retreats of this length, the first couple of days it takes a little bit of time to settle in, you know. Like it takes your body to get used to sitting and you have a lot of momentum of mind from 
the stuff you were doing before. So sometimes you might feel like, wow, I just feel like I just got settled to pay attention today and now it's time to go, right? Uh, it still is beneficial, you know, whatever uh, happened. But uh, yeah, if you're curious and have the opportunity and are interested, sign up for a week-long retreat and see how that goes, you know. There's many more things to, to learn and to train and appreciate and uh, the Dharma keeps opening up, you know, opening, opening, opening. I'm still learning, um, developing, growing, appreciated. It's beautiful, so... Uh, and really the, the work that you do, the training that you do, uh, will benefit you for the rest of your life, will impact everyone you encounter for the rest of your life, uh, all your relationships, all your work, everything. So it's definitely time well spent. So let's see if Alexis wants to add anything. Let's see. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So first, just say thank you all for um, just showing up and felt like we really tried to get the message across that you, exactly how you are, are fully invited here and just in the groups and even getting a sense of how we've been sitting together, I really sense that that has been taken up and uh, it's just lovely to do that with fellow human beings. you know, it's rare in the world that we get the opportunity to do that. It's, it's, it's really special. You know, each time that I'm engaged with a group and sitting either as a, the yogi or now increasingly on the stage, it's just remarkable that these qualities of mind and heart are in us and we can cultivate uh, this capacity. Um, Seeing that, what do we do on retreat? What is what is the main purpose of coming on retreat? I remember for a long time I wanted to go on retreat in order to either finish the job, get the job done. There's a phrase that's kind of the song of enlightenment: "Done what had to be done." And so for a while, that was my, my goal. <laughs> I've given up on that in terms of short-term <laughs> aspiration. <laughs> um, one of the things that my, my teacher would often say to the yogis early on in the retreat, was, and actually, I think in the introduction, he often say, I don't, I don't really want you to have even one insight on this retreat. I don't, that's not my goal for you, which is a strange thing for the you know, the teacher to be telling the yogis. But what what he really wants, what he was suggesting there was, I want you to really understand how to practice and the value of practice. Because when you you really start to uh, feel that and and bring that close to you, and you do that in life, it becomes your life. So we really can see the retreat as a time to, to deepen our connection to the Dharma, to uh, really broaden, um, develop our understanding of practice, so that when we leave, however long the retreat has been, there's a difference between when we arrived and when we left. There's a sense of, right, this really does make a difference. I do want to do this practice. Uh, 
I was in discussion uh, in one of the groups and I had said something and the yogi told me it had a strong impact for her. So I'll share that um, my partner was having a lot of doubts about um, the Dharma and, you know, hadn't struggling a bit with confidence. This was some years ago. And uh, he said, I want you to really reflect on, on the value of awareness. Do you value it? And what is the value of awareness to you? And when you really sense that, that that is important to you, automatically the mind becomes more interested. There's a sense of appreciation of what, what is the purpose of it. Um, you know, you can keep that close. You keep that really close. So when you're back in daily life and um, just a moment of remembering, you know, what, what can I be aware of right now? What difference does it make? to be aware of something, how am I feeling, the agitation, the busyness, anything at all, right? just anything that connects you to the practice again. And I really want to set the, um, the expectations very low when you go back to your life. Because the idea can be, when I get back, I will get up early, I will practice for 30 minutes or 45 minutes before work, I'll maintain some continuity during work. I will be very mindful with speech. By the evening, I'll be well rested, and then I'll come back and do another hour of sitting, <laughs> and then I'll go to bed contented. <laughs> I'll wake up and then, you know, do the whole round again. And then that's unfortunately unlikely to happen. Um, but we do do our best, right? We, we, we try and bring the practice with us and very simple practical things. And Pascal and Anushka mentioned a lot. Something really simple for me that helped was I wanted to practice each morning. Um, and yet when I actually looked around my bedroom, there was, the conditions weren't really there for that to, to happen. I noticed the room was just really cluttered. And just by simply moving a piece of furniture out of the room, putting a cushion down, it's like I couldn't be in the room without seeing and that just little reminder of the possibility of, of taking some time to practice. So anything like that that can be of support. Um, it makes a lot of difference, it really does. Yeah, I'll stop here. Why not? <laughs> So turn it back to the ringleaders. Great. So we have um, time for questions for you guys. Anything you would like to ask at this point? Yeah. Or comments? Or, yeah. Yeah. I'll just start in. Could you say just a little bit more about that? <laughs> that, last, that last piece um, in the chant we've been doing is about equanimity, right? But it sounds to me like it's describing karma. And I don't know how they're connected. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like, what? I don't get it at all. Except in one or two teeny ways. But. You go, yeah. 
I can go, you go. Um, one of the ways to connect them for me is that, uh, you know, we want to have uh, equanimity, to have, to have a mind that is stable, not reactive. It's not, uh, it, equanimity is not the result of will, like, okay, let me be equanimous now, you know, and bang, you know, like, it's, uh, it's conditional, it comes with conditions. One of the conditions that will help uh, equanimity be there is a deep, deep understanding that things are conditionals. Conditional. When conditions are right, they arise. And when conditions supporting their arising are not there, they don't arise. So w when I live with an understanding of cause and effect, conditionality, and we're really close to karma there, you know, I get to understand that, oh, okay, like I don't have to, like it makes sense. This happened because the conditions were right for this to happen. Now, what conditions do I have uh, some... Mm, mastery over or some, you know, that I can play with and what conditions can I not play with, you know, that are out, I can't control, you know. So something around, around this. And, yeah? Okay. <laughs> Let's uh, hear voices we haven't heard. I don't think we've heard. Yeah? Yeah? Yes, it's interesting because people come and retreat sometimes and they're like, oh, it'll be really peaceful. And then first we discover that during the daytime, you know, the mind is doing its thing in different ways that we didn't want it to. And then you think like finally at nighttime, some rest. And then <laughs> and then that too is uh, <laughs> ungovernable. <laughs> and one perspective on it is that... Um, This is actually some process of purification. And, you know, we go through and retreat and we're doing these practices and we're living in this particular conditions and um, uh, stuff comes up. Like people also notice during the day when you're sitting here, some people might um, recognize this, that you get some sort of like life review going on of stuff that you did that maybe you didn't even know you remembered, that you regret, like small things you did that were like out of alignment, you know, with the truth, right? So in some ways, like, this is going on through the mind in different ways, including at night. So uh, it's helpful to just see it as a arising and then kind of let it go. And you know, if there's some meaning to be discerned from it, then you can take it and then let it go. But in some ways, it's kind of like when you wash clothes in the washer. You know, the water gets dirty and then it ha drains out, so we don't have to worry about it um, too much. So it's part of this sort of process of purification stuff. As well as that, as we become more continuously aware, um, we actually can see more clearly even the objects of mind. You know, so dreams can seem more vivid too, too, and we can remember them more, right? There's something helpful to be learned, though, I think, from the way that we relate to dreams. So for most people, they're like, you know, I had this dream or something. So then it, it feels like this thing visited awareness, 
But we don't identify with the dream in some way that we identify with like daily waking thoughts. You know, it's sort of like, oh, this thing arrived and then, you know, uh, revealed itself and then departed. You know, uh, So it's actually a helpful relationship to have to waking thoughts too. But usually we're much more identified with waking thoughts as like, this is my thought, this is me, this is mine, this is like absolutely true. Whereas with dreams we usually don't think like, oh, this is absolutely true, I must do exactly what the dream said or something, you know. It's good. But you should also consider that with your waking thoughts, too. <laughs> it could be a helpful relationship to have, you know. Yeah. Uh, I appreciated hearing, Alexis, that your teacher said that you don't need to have, or you, you don't need for you to have insight um, on a retreat. I find myself feeling over the past few days, you know, I there were moments of insight and there were moments of, of articulation and clarity and that felt very beautiful and I, I, this, I was trying to practice um, being okay with that those may go. I might not remember those. Um, <coughs> but I still find myself feeling a little sense of loss and grief right now. And as you said, Pascal, uh, you know, I think my, my feeling of loss or grief comes from, I don't know if I'll be able to articulate that again, you know, in my speech towards others or that thought that I had about my, you know, relationship with my, my mother or my lover and, and how clear I felt. Um, and so I'm sort of sitting here wanting to really be okay with that and also acknowledging that I do want to know how to articulate these things because speech is so valuable. Um, and I was hoping you could speak to, to that a bit. <laughs> I'll start in. I have a feeling we'll each want to say something because it's a very rich territory potentially. Um, did anyone not hear the question? Not so much. Um, so um, she was saying that she appreciated the comment that my teacher didn't, um, you know, didn't put it at the highest priority having an insight, that that was relieving in a way. But then it's um, also already feeling a sense of sadness that hard to even keep hold of the insights when they do happen, sense of loss and almost uh, knowing that in going home we'd love to be able to communicate some of what was understood on the retreat um, to one, to dear loved ones. Um, is that kind of the whole, yeah. And myself as well. To hold it for yourself, yeah. Just to say, on, it helped me a lot when I heard, um, you know, the mind has a momentum to it and First, in keeping the practice going, that we do build, we build this momentum when we see that we let it go for a while, we see the momentum diminish. Wisdom is like that also. The more we keep it active and alive, the wisdom nature, the functioning of that actually is encouraged and, and established. Um, but it's not like an on and off switch. You know, it, there's an insight oftentimes will need to be visited again and again for that really to mature, 
to really, uh, to really become part of one's mind. Uh, and so, we, so almost like it's not our responsibility, we keep with the practice knowing that in practicing well, understanding comes. We see our habit patterns, we see that which is unskillful, why it leads to some you know, stress and suffering, how a moment of clarity, what the results of that is. And that brings insights, we really understand that. There's a eagerness to share the nothingness that happened on retreat with everyone back home. Um, because it isn't nothing, right? There is a whole lot that happens. Um, one thing that's often shared at the end of retreat is when people ask you how was the retreat, um, you may be tempted to say more than what they're asking. <laughs> Which they may just be asking, like, are you still you? And, you know, are you, can I talk to you? And how are you? You know, I'm just fine, uh, is what they're wanting to hear. <laughs> and I know that by experience. I've definitely, I've bored and irritated way too many people with, with my, uh, whatever happened on retreat. Um, so one, one thing, uh, I, I, this little story, I don't know if it's, I can't remember who the teacher was, but I think a student was reporting to this teacher saying, when, I'm, when I go back home and I, I act you know, like a, a meditator or a Buddhist, no one likes me. <laughs> but when I go back and I embody, like I become a, a Buddha, a, a, a present, kind, patient, listening being, it's like, yes, that's, that's the result of the practice. So just kind of keeping that line of embodying it rather than trying to do something. Um, and then at times, you know, when you're, when you're settled and no agenda and someone else is actually interested, you can feel that. And then, of course, share. Share what you know. And if you want to keep the insights alive, keep practicing. as you want. So the question is uh, around um, when you're attuned to the suffering in the world, I'm paraphrasing a bit here maybe, when you're attuned to the suffering in the world, how do you not get overwhelmed constantly by, by it? No, Something like this. Mm-hmm. So this is where um, we want to invite, bring in the practice of equanimity. So all these, imagine compassion alone would be kind of always in the field of the difficult. It would be draining, you know. That's why we want to have access to joy and the capacity to see what's beautiful, to balance the mind. 
So this is the art of practice, is to say, oh, very, very touched by this. Now about to draw on, you know, about to fall into despair, lose energy, not good for anyone. You know, somebody who's in despair about somebody else's situation, for example, is not going to be a really helpful person. So an understanding that we want to keep the system balanced and well in order to be more effective in our way to, you know, uh, be of service or contribute, or, you know. So one of the ways we have is the other Brahmaviharas, the other uh, um, uh, beautiful qualities of the heart. For example, the joy. So to to be able to ten, you know, bend the mind in the direction, say, okay, love, now we're going to notice what's beautiful, you know, because we don't want to be exclusive to what's difficult, you know. So there, there's one thing there. Another of the energies is the energies of, uh, of um, or the quality of equanimity. And this one is developed over time, but it's a deep recognition that it is how it is, you know, that I'm not going to be able to solve things, that the, it's not a question of will, me wanting it to be otherwise doesn't quite make it, you know. And so it's a kind of deep acceptance, humility, something, and a desire to be in this life as it is, you know, this is how it is. And so, not in order to say like, oh, this is how things are, you know, and people are exploited and uh, some are invisible and, you know, that's how it is, you know. No. But this is how it is right now. Can I be, can I open to this, you know, with the particular intention, interest, how can I be stable in this? So what we've been doing here all week was practicing this, starting with, you know, knee pain, starting with, the bell not ringing at the time where I want to, it to ring, you know? Can I actually stay stable while I'm losing control over bell ringing, you know? And so it's, that's what we're doing. We're, oh, can I be okay with the fact that it's not happening how I want in this mind right now? If I can do this here, I'll be able to look at the world, you know, the shape it's in and say, wow, what a mess, you know? Let me stay calm and take it in instead of being indifferent, reactive, lose energy, you know. Let me connect intimacy with the world, you know. Wow, it's like this right now. Okay, what do I do now with what I have available? Do you see some? So it's delicate, it's not going to be easy, but possible maybe. Yes, so in Dharma practice, uh, you know, technically the way that we've been practicing here on retreat with Vipassana in this particular technique is more about uh, orienting towards the details, right? So like seeing moment to moment, being with that. Um, but in Dharma practice, you know, it's helpful to remember it's this eightfold path is actually very wide of all the different ways in which we cultivate our alignment with the truth. And so sometimes it actually helps to reflect um, kind of macro, so go wide angle too, and particularly to help bring some equanimity sometimes um, because sometimes we get kind of drilled down on like, okay, this one thing that's happening right in front of me. So sometimes opening out more wide angle can help us see like, yeah, okay, this is part of this vast tableau of the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And it's not disconnecting us from it, but putting it in a larger context in which there's actually, you know, 7 billion different actions happening, you know, in, in all different ways. And this has been happening over these vast expanses of time. And, uh, you know, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference, that 
sometimes feels like it, but it's not that. So it's, it's a very mature spiritual quality, I think. You know, it's like a, a groundedness and a caring and a balance, right? Uh, so we do the best we can, but sometimes kind of going wide-angle reflection macro can help to like, bring that balance a little too. We'll take uh, maybe two more questions. Uh, and so who hasn't asked something? I don't think you have. By long-term practice, do you mean like a long retreat or just having practiced a long time? Like the results of having practiced a long time. I think one thing that surprised me is being less surprised by stuff. <laughs> Meaning like when the mind is not projecting out what is supposed to happen next, then there's an openness and then it's like, oh, look, this, you know, in some way. Uh, and maybe also... Uh, this may be also one of the ones that someone else might be a better judge of than me, but I think a, a positive development of sense of humor, of uh, you know being able to see similarly like just the wackiness of arisings in some way that's actually also very helpful for equanimity, honestly. Uh, so I'll tell a very brief story. And, you know, I'm traveling a lot now to teach, and um, there's often bumps in the travels, of course, you know, especially weather like this and stuff so this plane uh, <laughs> no, it's like another day in the office for him it's like nothing um, the last time I came in uh, the plane landed in Logan and then we just sat there and the plane had been late and stuff and then um, so the person next to me is getting like agitated about this because we already landed but then the, the pilot comes on and says well we're waiting for a gate someone's at our gate right now so then we wait there 10 minutes 20 minutes and you, we roll up a little bit more and then we stop again. Uh, and then the pilot said, um, well, they have to de-ice the plane at the gate, so it's going to take a little longer. So then the person next to me getting more and more agitated, like texting people vigorously. And <laughs> then um, you know, we go, we roll on, and then he comes on 10 minutes later, and he says, well, um, I'm sorry to say, but someone else pulled into our gate. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I just started laughing, because I was like, what is this, like the grocery store parking lot? Like someone just... <laughs> snuck in and you didn't, you know. Um, so I just started laughing and then the person next to me was, you know, in some state of irate, the irate lens was on. So then, of course, she sort of looked at me annoyedly that I'm laughing about this. So I tried to explain to her to be, so I was like, yeah, it seems like it's like the grocery store parking lot. Like, what is and then, But then because the lens of irateness was there, you know, it was, it's really interesting, like that colors that too. And she was like, yeah, our pilot should be more aggressive. How did he let someone else... <laughs> get in there, you know, and uh, <laughs> so it's like, well, uh, you know, the mind being balanced or unbalanced in different situations, so noticing the mind is balanced in more situations, and sometimes humor or different things that, you know, the mind is more steady, which is a blessing, yeah. <laughs> uh. So for me, I think I referred to it a few times, but definitely it's um, mind-blowing to me that, um, that it's possible to see to the 
the illusion of the creation of self, like the self, like the, that there is first, that there is a creation of a moi and a fascination for it and, a, and that one can notice this, you know, still get caught in it a lot, but notice that it's actually a projection, mirage, a, a made up thing. You know, to me, it's like such the essence, like I think, therefore I am, you know, like it's the unquestionable and that it's actually possible to see through this just view. It's just a view. It's a mind construction and one can see through this. And, and the other part of it is that I'm surprised about is the capacity to be extremely responsible for actions or words spoken or, you know, to actually be honest and responsible about what was done, or it's uh, yeah. So I, I don't know how clear it is when I say that, but I'm just amazed that one with paying attention could reveal the kind of uh, generation of the production, the fiction of a, a self, and how relieving it is to know that it's. Uh, Little joke, <laughs> in a way, and keep boundaries clear and stuff. You know, keep, keep taking care of self, but knowing that it's a creation of the mind. I think. Um You know, just over the years of practice, I'm, I'm amazed that the practice continues to be of interest. I'm not, as, I'm not amazed as much now, but but it it just keeps getting. I'm, I'm, the more I show up and I practice and I'm interested and I engage in my edges and my my uh, you know tough spots, and the growth happens. It's like I'm just the sense of the possibility of what we are as a human being, it's just, it's, it's remarkable. I think one of the things that I was taught in medical school at that time when I was there was the brain is, you know, once we have the brain, it's kind of formed, that's it. And now I think the science is telling us very differently. And I think, you know, for anyone that has ever practiced, we know directly that at least the mind, and I assume the brain is changing also, but the mind is very conditionable, for better or worse, and we really can change the course of our life. Um, and what that means as far as the wholesome potential is, is really incredible. So, I'm just increasingly uh, inspired by, by what's possible, and that the practice continues to be of s- such deep interest, that it's not a mechanical process that keeps happening, it's the quality of awareness grows, the quality of wisdom grows, and it's this kind of cycling process that keeps feeding into each other. So, yeah, thank you for your question. So maybe one last question, if uh, there is, I don't think we've heard your voice.
Um, about laughing Buddha statues? You mean just Buddha statues in general or something like that? Or? Mm. It's like this, this tradition of, um, of Buddhist practice, of this Vipassana insight practice, is um, kind of from the Theravada school, which is um, from the countries of like Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka. So then um, because of that, the statues and um, kind of artwork around um, by and large is from that, those countries and sort of that tradition. And it's interesting, there's been a, um, like when, when the Buddha was alive, uh, he didn't, ha- there weren't any images of him made. And in fact, he didn't want images of him made. So the first images of the Buddha statues and stuff came hundreds of years later. Um, and you can see them in the museum sometimes. It's like, um, they're actually during the time of like Alexander the Great's movement across Asia. So they actually look like these Greek Olympic athletes, like Buddha's very buff and uh, he looks very Anglo, you know, like the nose and the features and stuff. And um, they have this in, in San Francisco in the Asian Art Museum and probably art museums, you know. And then as it moves through different um, cultures and places, then you could see the Buddha statues, like everyone's trying to make them look like themselves in some ways, or, you know, uh, as happens in religious iconography, <laughs> which is why. Jesus looks like a Norwegian guy in many places, right? <laughs> Though it seems like he's from the Middle East, he might not look like that, right? So, um, so anyway, the, I think the Laughing Buddha was a certain period, maybe uh, I don't know, Japan or China or something like that, and expressing a certain um, uh, certain thing. And there's there's actually a lot of interesting things to said, be said about sort of humor and Buddhism uh, too. But the the hope is that these statues are inspiring, yeah, like certain qualities of heart and mind. Um, but also, uh, I think it's interesting that Buddha like didn't actually want there to be statues. Like he was like not trying to start this personality cult, um, and uh, so it's, it's helpful to if they're inspiring to take that. I think, but also, um, as, as Pascal was saying, sometimes if it if it imposes some idea of perfection or it has to be like this, or uh, people get very tripped up, for example, at how you sit, for example, because like I should sit like the statue in this way. And if I don't, if I sit on a chair, it's lesser, and I'm not going to uh, awaken. And it totally has nothing to do with how you fold your legs, really. You know, it really doesn't. So, uh, so kind of checking in with that and allowing that to be inspiring. And, and, um, yeah. Okay. And you, I don't know if you guys noticed the one in the back that is particularly uh, beautiful. I think it's Kuan Yin, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. And uh, she has a like a crack mm-hmm. going through, like kind of cracked open, still practicing, <laughs> not giving up. So, um, uh, what we could do is do um, uh, do what you guys do in America: do a bio break <laughs> for a few minutes. <laughs> And then, uh, so we'll take um, maybe uh, maybe ten minutes exactly, and we'll ring a little bit the bell. But uh, come back here in ten minutes. Try to really be on time so you don't miss the the instructions because we'll do a, uh, this exercise of sharing. You don't have to do it, uh, and we encourage you to uh, to do it. And so feel free. You can come back to hear the instructions more. 
and then maybe decide after the instruction, oh, no. So I want to, actually what I'm trying to do is leave a few doors open so you can feel totally safe not to do it. And I would really encourage you to actually try it because you're, you're going to end up talking to somebody <laughs> in the next few, day, few days. So, and listen to yourself. You know. But uh, it's going to be really organized, uh, you know, one speaking at a time, very kind of quietly. So uh, it's probably, uh, will make it safe. Okay. And the break will be in silence also. So yeah. we'll do the breaking of silence in the exercise that uh, Pascal does. So if you want to stay here, stretch, just sit, you can also. But if you need a bio break, feel free. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.